Hello everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of The Followers. It's episode... John, what episode is it? Don't even try, don't even try. It's an episode. Anyway, today we're lucky enough to get James Morahan on. So James Morahan was a really interesting case study. Sports nutritionist, he's worked with the FA, he's worked at West Ham, he's worked with a number of elite rugby players, and he's worked with a number of prize fighters as well, including a couple of British champions and a European champion, I think, as well. My boxing knowledge isn't as good as it should be. But it was a really, really interesting episode. So, John, what did you think? Yeah, give a great overview of how, like, an applied PhD in nutrition works. He's there doing the studies, writing it all up, but working as a nutritionist day to day. And he, he worked with two different rugby league teams over the course of it. Spent some time at West Ham and got a chance to to be supervised by two absolute top dogs in terms of nutrition, Professors Graham Close and James Norton. Also gave us a brilliant breakdown of the lead into a fight with a, with a boxer trying to make way some of the pitfalls, some of the key things you're looking after and how to do it safely and effectively. Yeah, I really like that because obviously there's a lot of similarities to drawing it with prep in a bodybuilding world, men just with a few key differences. So it was great to kind of talk out a few of the differences and see so many similarities in the approach. Yeah, so everyone, you're in for a treat here with uh, Dr. James Moran. Uh, James, previous guests we've had on have spoken about their, their about turns turns in terms of career backgrounds like Shane here went from insurance to working nutrition agency Damien was a quantity surveyor I used to be a carpenter Stephen Bean also a carpenter but I think by a mile the most interesting is you having a background as a snowboarder and snowboard instructor can you tell us how you ended up there and what brought you back then to to get very into academia and the likes yeah um so basically my when I finished college um I, I definitely had a vision of going to university, but I just wasn't ready yet. Um, quite immature back then and probably still am now. But I, at 18, decided to go to Canada um, and basically do an intensive training course with a company over there called Skeela Gap. Um, so you lived in Montreal, um, in particular Mont Tremblant, which was the mountain range. And then it was three and a half months of, if you had snowboarded before, um, they broke down your technique and basically brought you back down to scratch. And then they built you up the Canadian way, like the way that the Canadians snowboard. So three and a half months intensive training of that. Um, and then at the end of it, you sit your exams. So almost like a driving test, you, you would sit your level one, your level two. And then those that had dabbled a little bit with the freestyle stuff in the park, you would then go and sit your level one freestyle exam. So did that for three and a half months, um, came back and I was a waiter at the time in Pizza Hut down in uh, Colchester, Essex. So saved up a load of money waitering and then went to Thailand, Philippines, kind of traveled Southeast Asia and then went back again the next year to Canada and did a uh, five and a half months. So I was now trained, but I then worked for Skeela Gap as it was a, an amazing job title, international events coordinator. Essentially, I ran the bar. That was it. Um, but what I did do was for five and a half months, I snowboarded pretty much every day. So I clocked up, um, I joined the Centurion Club of of snowboarding, which is where every single day for a hundred days you strap in and, and you're up the mountain. So that, that was incredible. And what that gave me was an unbelievable amount of time on the mountain to develop and keep progressing so that towards the back end of it, you could then go and sit your level three exam. 
Um, following that year, um, amazing time, incredible. And then I then headed up a bit of a snowboard instructor department over in Poland for about four months. So that was kind of my like third winter season. Um, and then 21 birthday hit and was like, Christ, am I literally doing this for the rest of my life or do I want to go to university now and, and try and get that kind of career working in sport? And, and that was where the journey then began at Liverpool John Moores University. Was a career working in sport something that had sat with you like throughout your teens or was like snowboarding was the sport so you said, okay, I, I will just go branch out to other sports from this? Nah, um, used to play football to a, a okay standard, was never ever going to make it and then shifted to rugby. I'm five foot six so the only position I was ever going to play was number nine. Um, so did that and, and enjoyed that and if I'm honest, I would have loved to have played professionally at snowboarding but just never gave it enough attention as a as a youngster so they were my two sports and then yeah the snowboarding I was, I was set on doing just a gap year and um I just wanted to spend some time away from England and just seeing the world and the the actual story I, w- I was having uh uh urine in the toilet um having a number one and standing next to my mate and I just said to him what are you doing this year and he was like, mate, I'm going to Canada with Skila Gap. Like, you should check it out. So that night, straight on the internet, had a look at it and was like, wow, that looks incredible. So the next day I'd put a deposit down and, and that was it. So, yeah. And had you snowboarded before or was that like literally your first time strapping in when you went over? No, I'd, I'd been before. I'd done uh, a little bit, but technique, very, very shabby, very poor technique and that's you're sometimes it's actually better if you've never snowboarded because you can go over there blank slate and they can say right this is how you snowboard whereas with me i'd I'd picked up like some really poor habits and then they have to get that out of you and start again um so yeah it's for beginners it's for advanced it's just in, an incredible process really and then to liverpool john moore's you started into was a sport and exercise science in general sport and exercise nutrition you started your degree in no, so sport and exercise science was my undergrad. Um, so I did that for three years. R- you know, really enjoyed the, the the course and the people. And I guess I was 21, so I was a little bit more mature. Um, and with that, I was so set on, you know, really working hard at the academics, but just getting involved with like master's projects, PhD projects, helping out with sporting athletes where I could. So Dr. George Wilson, who's done all of his uh, research and PhD in the jockey world, I remember he had Frankie Dottori in the lab. And as an undergrad, I was like, yeah, like get me involved. Like I want to rip in. And even if I was holding like a one of the tubes for the VO2 max, at least I was in the lab with the athlete. So that was my mentality as, a, as an undergrad. And then, yeah, that rolled into a master's in sport physiology at Liverpool John Moores again. Um, which an amazing year that that gave me some real good hands-on experience with St Helens Rugby League. Um, that was part of my kind of applied placement project, and then it was only, if I'm honest, towards the back end of the piece, back end of the masters, where I started having a bit of an interest in nutrition. Before that, hands up, I was a closet SNC coach. I, I wanted to be an SNC coach. I'd worked at Saracens Academy, volunteering with their kind of Ben Youngs at the time and Dan Nisbet and, and ripping into some of the academy players there. And I was really set on being an SNC coach. And then back end of the Masters, the nutrition kind of um, took my fancy. And 
And then that's where I was very persistent with knocking on Professor Graham Close's door. Uh, got on with Graham my whole academic career, to be honest. He, he's he's almost like a second father and mentor. But yeah, just persistent knocking on his door and just said, look, mate, I'm so set on doing a PhD. If you can find me the money and help me out, I'm, I'm number one candidate. Um, and about couple of months went past and he, he just said you're legitimately not going to stop knocking are you until I find this for you and I was on that um, and then yeah we managed to get a PhD set up and run in the first year with Widness Vikings Rugby League so they they kind of part funded the first year of the PhD with Nutrition X which is a supplement company um, the university put some money in and then I, had, I actually had to ring up the ring up my dad and, and ask my dad whether he could loan me a couple of K for the um the rest of the PhD, but no one's meant to know that, so we'll keep that under wraps. <laughs> and then um after the first year was had an amazing year working with um again another mentor of mine, John Clark, who's S and C coach at England Rugby now. He was at Warrington at the time, had brilliant year working with him together. We really bounced off each other and then he went over to Warrington Wolves and was like, mate, there's a great opportunity here for you to come to a bigger club, more funding, bigger fans, more scope to do research. And I think it's the first time in LJMU history that a PhD student has, I wouldn't say headhunted, but a PhD student has left one institute and gone to a, another one, which was a rival club six miles down the road. And so I had to go through that process of like leaving Witness and going to Warrington. And then I had two years there and, and had two incredible years of working with the senior squad, the academy players. And, and a lot of those players formed part of the research that I then did on the PhD. Um, and then, yeah, fin finished the PhD up, wrapped it up. And then first full time role was in England football. There was a job there and I applied for it. So technically my first full-time employment in sport was was with the FA. Where do you go from there? Like, like what's oh, what's the progression for that? Well, I'm with like my home country, National Squad, we're hopefully going to do really well. The Euro's here now. How do I top this? Before we, before we dig into your PhD studies, just that kind of applied phd position is that kind of where you're actually working as the nutritionist more or less to, to the senior team in the academy squad spreading your time across but also collecting data for research towards a specific project problem question whatever it may be yeah i think so traditionally if, if you if you think about a phd i mean and i've got many mates that have done it this way it would be in the lab in the library full time and you're working with petri dishes and you know they are your subjects they're your participants and i've got mates that have done brilliant phd's that are going on to fantastic things now i guess where mine was a little bit different was exactly what you've said i was essentially witness first year i was full time nutritionist in the club so graham opened the door to the club and he said mate you're in they want a presentation on protein next week Thumbs up, have a good year. And I was like, holy cow, what what do I do? So I was firmly thrown in at the deep end by, by Graham, which I will always thank him for because it was sink or swim. And in that environment, I was the only southerner in a very northern club. It's full of St. Helens, Wigan, Warrington, like, you know, Cumbrian lads. And yeah, it was just an amazing year of, of kind of ripping into this is what it's like to be a performance nutritionist in a club. 
Um, the brilliant thing with Widnes was that they were they were gagging for someone to come in and, and do that. They really needed it as a club, and it was a bit of a blank canvas where whatever ideas I came up with, they were willing to listen to, and they were putting the trust in me. Um, the players were putting the trust in me, and and we ran away with some amazing kind of projects in the first year. But then, yeah, the you know at some point, me and Graham did have a coffee with each other and sit down and say, right, you are doing a PhD as well, mate. So we need to think about what research questions do we need to answer. So the, um, we were beginning to think about well, well, what is missing in the literature. Do, you know, as an example, do we know what body composition of senior players looks like across multiple Super League teams? There was li- little bits of data in that from kind of Australia, but there was nothing that had done it on the scale that we wanted to do in in England. That led into the second study of like actually understanding what the energetic cost of rugby league is. So do we know how many calories players burn on average day to day? If I don't know that as a nutritionist, it's very hard for me to then prescribe correct nutritional intakes for those players. So that's why we came up with those first couple of studies. And, and Graham was kind of you know leading on that. He was giving me the ideas and then it was down to me to get the buy-in of the players do the do the donkey work essentially basically mate yeah yeah i was graham's uh his his nickname for me is pup so i was i was firmly his little puppy for four years i would say (laughs) that model has evolved like was tony strudwick's phd back in coventry around 99 that he was in that kind of in the snc and there's very broad sports science and i think in leeds beckett since they've done an awful lot more in rugby league and rugby union across like strength academy nutrition everything was yours kind of one of the first nutrition ones to to go that route around Uh, the same time as a couple of others i wouldn't say i was the first no um warren bradley or dr warren bradley he he had started before me so his was at munster um So he was over there with Graham and and Bryce Kavanagh at the time. Um, So he'd started doing that from from out of like the LJMU set up. But I I think it was it was it was heading that way years before me. Um, The beautiful thing about Liverpool John Moores is that the links that that academic institute has got with global teams and sports is is unbelievable. And it was always going to start going down that way. Um, the more that we started to think about, well, what is the translational potential of what we do in the labs into the real world? And the answer really was to go and study it in the real world. So it was always going to head that way. And I was just fortunate, I think, at the time that the stars had aligned. I'd gone to university a little bit late. I'd met Graham. I'd met Professor James Morton. They'd become two really good friends. And I was the one that was persistent knocking on the door. Uh, then so you start off just kind of collecting baseline stuff because it's very much a broad area we there's questions that need to be answered did you refine something then from one of your first two or three studies down then say okay i really need to find out more about this like did you go into an intervention then or was it just to to find out more detail around a specific area yeah i think um we we definitely started wide with the net um and and there's there is a fine balancing act of what is available to do with professional athletes you've got to remember that they are contracted players at a club their goal is to train as hard as they can and play the best that they can at the weekend so we had to work within the boundaries of that and think well what can we collect that would allow me to write up 
a thesis that would have a story flowing through it, but would also benefit the players there and then. So understanding body composition was was a key one for me because if S&C coaches were saying, right, I want you to put four kilo of muscle on him in six weeks, I was saying, well, actually, we've got data that wouldn't support that. Like, very difficult to do that unless you want him to take steroids and get banned. So that was a nice baseline to look at what, what does a typical rugby league player look like in each position from body composition so that we know that what we've got to try and build towards. Um, the energy expenditure one was a bit of a no-brainer, really. If I was going to try and give them advice about nutrition, I need to know what the energetic cost of the game is. Um, now, we only did that on six players just because of budget at the time. We used the doubly label water method for that. Yeah, exactly. And I was just going to say it. Back then, it was about £1,200 for a bottle of water. I've just seen you drinking your bottle and that was probably 90p. So it, it, it's an expensive <laughs> bottle of water, essentially, to be buying and, and enriching with the isotopes. But what it does give you is a pretty good gold standard, accurate assessment of this is total energy expenditure. So the GPS units and Sensewares and the Garmin's, you know, that will give you a good indication. But if I want to know what your total energy expenditure is, we're probably going to need to do a DLW study. So that's why we did that. And then what one of Warren's PhD studies, actually, we, we ran at Witness Vikings with my academy players. And that was the first study of its kind that assessed glycogen utilisation during match play. So that's where it was an amazing, amazing kind of uh, army... Uh, style study that we ran it was like a military operation we had had about 17 members of staff we had four people that were putting biopsy needles in legs we had then like people taking blood out of arms we had players fainting I mean again we won't tell the ethics board this but we had players fainting left right and centre they were then going on the pitch and playing games It, it was incredible but it was the first of its kind novel no one had ever put a biopsy needle inside a, a rugby player's leg before. And the previous work before that was done in the 1980s from like the classic Bergstrom study in, in the Danish uh, second division. So we were really pushing the boundaries on what can be done in the applied world of, of sport science and sport nutrition research with Warren's study there, yeah. I could saw one actually by Leeds Beckett there about two seasons ago and they went in and did all that at half time in a game in an academy match and like you have to be so careful there like if you do anything that's going to impact performance in the second half you can just imagine the head coach or the president club was like who who is this fool sticking needles in our players get him out of here I'll tell you a funny story so my my final PhD study was we wanted to assess the effectiveness of um, cherry juice on reducing markers of inflammation so there's some brilliant work in controlled lab- laboratory s- studies showing that it does work. It does help to reduce soreness and inflammation. But we wanted to test that in the real world of applied sport when players are consuming dietary intake of polyphenols anyway. Long story cut short, part of that process was that we needed to get blood samples out of players at half time at competitive fixtures. The first game that we did, um, the, the, the team lost. And we inherently, we had some of the players that were like, it was a blood sample, like, I, I'm not having a needle put in my arm, blah, blah, blah. 
So we were all there like, Christ, the, what we needed really was them to absolutely demolish that game and for them to buy into the process. Nonetheless, the players were on board. They, they were a great group of, of players. Second game, um, they won and they won pretty well away at Huddersfield. And a lot of the players were like, love the fact that I'm having a needle put in me at half time and I'm seeing blood. And it, it, it was almost like the red rag to the ball. They were like really getting up for the second half. Final game, they won and they beat top of the table and it meant that they then went second, a point behind top of the table and they were absolutely buzzing and they said to us, they were like, come back next week, like do the needles again, we want, we want, we want to see blood again next week and it was just like, it was an amazing thing to reflect back on and think, Christ, we were genuinely, honestly, we were in there stealth mode at, at half time on our knees we weren't even using tourniquets because the veins were pumping out anyway and we were just sticking needles in, getting blood out. Five seconds done. Next player, bang, five seconds done. Head coach is doing a team talk and we did it all in silence and then bang, off they go out for second half. And it's like, I always wonder like, if there was a random, I don't know, kit man at that stadium that walked past the changes at half time and thought, Jesus Christ, what's going on here with these players? <laughs> I'm struggling to have time to get players to just eat a few wine gums and you're, you're taking blood from them all. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. It was, uh, it was a good study. to. I, I, really, I, I presented that at the European Conference of Sports Science and yeah, I, I was fortunate I managed to pick up silver award there and I was buzzing with it. But it, it was a real applied study and it had many limitations, many flaws because inherently when you're in the, in the trenches at half-time collecting blood... He might have took a caffeine gel as well and we missed it. I don't know. But there were so many uh, limitations of it being applied that it was almost that good. Just there on looking at calorie expenditure from looking at stuff, is there much of a difference in calorie expenditure between kind of academies and adolescents and, and adult players? Um, yeah, there is, yeah. I mean, inherently, the, the, one of the biggest contributors to kind of your total energy expenditure is your resting metabolic rate. And the biggest contributor of resting metabolic rate would be your lean tissue, so fat-free mass. So, the, the, you know, if you've got a 120-kilo prop who's got, I don't know, off a DEXA read and he might have 85 kilo of, of lean mass on a DEXA versus... 55 kilo player who's got 33 kilo of lean mass on a DEXA, there will be resting metabolic rate, there might be five, 600 kcal difference, let alone how much it costs that player to carry 120 kilo around the park versus the academy player. So yeah, there, there are differences. And, and I think, I guess, outside of rugby a little bit, but more team sport and, and football in specific, one of my good mates, Dr. Marcus Hannon, who's just finished his PhD at Everton, you know, some outstanding data that that, that, that guy's collected on academy players there and, and looking at what is the expenditure of 14, 15-year-olds, 17, 18-year-olds and under 23s. And it's amazing when you see that Marcus is presenting data showing that you've got like 15 or 14, 15-year-old players expending 4,500 calories a day. Now, I, I bet all of us, I, I'd struggle to eat 4,500 calories a day and I'm 31 let alone a 14-year-old player who it's the mum and dad that buy the food. The mum and dad aren't going to know that. They're, he's probably eating 2,000 calories, but he's expending four and a half. So 
it, it it's amazing research at the moment that's happening in the industry and I guess it's it's our job as nutritionists to make sure the right people are educated so to go back to your original question yeah there is a large difference between academy and seniors um, we actually had a Mickey Quinn he played Aussie rules for a couple of years so he's back teaching in Ireland now and he was just saying how going to a game like a match in Ireland on the bus with the players 14 or 15 year olds stopping the shop afterwards and the amount of food they consume like that's somewhat impressive but how much use they can put a five euro note and come out with that much food it is mathematical wizardry sometimes <laughs> they manage to, to, to purchase it at all your supervisors there um graham close and james norton they'd be very highly respected both in terms of research and applied research there across like, like graham obviously worked with monster and everything but james through team sky see liverpool for a while worked with numerous fighters and everything as well um how closely did you work with those? Was it mainly with, with Graham and pulling James a bit, or did you eventually just work alongside both of them quite a bit? Yeah, I mean, again, do the stars align? Am I lucky? Have I written the own path? I, I don't know, but whatever way it happened, I was immensely fortunate to to have both James and Graham as as my PhD supervisors, and you know, I think they are both so you know. Clever is not the right word. They're, yes, they're clever. They're professors at what they do. But I think individually, it's their ability to buy or get athletes on board, strategically apply what they've learned from years of experience into the world that they're now working with and, and gain the respect and trust of some very, very well-known, highly respected athletes across the world. Um, and they're just learning from the processes that they go through the mistakes that they've made across their journeys and being able to use them as a sounding board, you know, to ring up Graham and say, mate, I think I've mm, upped here. I think I've done something wrong. Mate, what do I do? Or I've got a player that, you know, he's not buying into this process. Like, I don't know why. Like, have you ever experienced that before at Munster? And then they can just rattle off. Yeah, this has happened. This has happened. I remember, I remember James was a good one when, when we were working with Rocky and, Rocky had he had a bit of a, a a boozy period between not that he was an alcoholic he just had a couple of beers after a fight and and put on a substantial amount of weight but when he came in to start his next camp we had to take 17 kilos off of him in 11 weeks and I, and I was kind of working with Rocky at the time but James James used to work with Rocky and he kind of said to me, would you like to take on the project and I'll help oversee it? So we worked on it all together. And I remember ringing up James saying, like, is that even physiologically possible? Like, one, is it safe? And two, like, is that something we want to support and condone as a university where everything we do is about evidence-based practice? And I remember James saying to me, he was like, "It's, it's a serious amount of weight to lose, but the opposite is if you don't support Rocky to do it, he's going to do it anyway and he's going to do it in a really negative way and he won't know what he's doing. So we've almost got a due diligence there to actually support him and look after him the right way and just really make sure he does it properly. And it's those situations that I've been lucky my whole career to be able to ring up James and Graham at any time point and, and have those discussions. And yeah, I, I genuinely, my whole career probably owe to both of them blokes. 
that's a, that's actually a real nice segue there. We're going to dip into like some team sport considerations, but you've brought us into like boxers and fighters making weight and all like that. So we'll go with that. Um, you've worked with a few boxers, Rocky there, as you mentioned, and a few other athletes who make weight. I'm wondering, even your time part of your masters there, did you look at some of the the jockeys and that? But when it comes to like fighters making weight, like you would seventeen kg in eleven weeks there. Is that about the shortest window you've worked with an athlete? Ideally, how long would you approach it? Like, obviously, they'd be near the weight the majority of the time they're walking around weight, but that's not always the case. What are some kind of typical time ranges you have seen? What would you maybe see as, listen, that is too much? And what's kind of like, oh, this is just making my life so much easier if they were? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the shortest time period I've done is four weeks. Um, and, And that was when... It, we kind of cheated a bit, but before Rocky got signed the fight against uh, Tyrone Zoiger for his world title in Germany, he, Jamie Moore basically said to him, there's good discussions going on, but you've got to be ready. We need to keep you ready. So he was training, actively training. Um, but then the, the nod came from Matchroom and, and Eddie Hearn that, bang, we've got the title fight. It's in four weeks' time. Are you going to be ready? So we almost had like a four-week camp but he was teetering around a, a, an okay weight. So that was like the shortest I've done, kind of four weeks. The, the longest I've done um, was, I think it was 14 weeks, again with Rocky, where opponents either kept pulling out or it was getting delayed. Um, and and that I think that was too long for Rocky because it's just quite a long time to like stay in, in the zone and on a process. Um, and it was certainly too long for him. So I, I think kind of the a, a good time frame for a camp, I would say, would be that 10 to 12 week period. Um, providing that you, the athlete is not rebounding too much. Um, I, I, I know Chris Billum-Smith. He's a, he's a good mate of mine. I've known him years. He's, um, he's cruiserweight. Um, got a fight hopefully coming up against one of your Irish boys, Tommy McCarthy. And... Um, He's he's brilliant because he fights at 90.6, but the most he'll ever go is like 100, maximum ever. But normally he's floating around 97, 98. So then if you look at him and you go, okay, eight to 10 week camp, we know that he's going to lose about two and a half, three and a half in that acute weight loss over the last five, seven days. So to make that weight for him is actually really easy. But for Rocky at six foot two, coming in at like 93 kilo and then having to weigh 76 or whatever it was. He was weighing in the same weight that I weigh habitually and I'm five foot six and he's six foot two. That that was tough. And so I, I wouldn't ever suggest an athlete does that. And there's actually some really cool research and literature coming now, out now talking about the effects of those individuals that weight cycle when they're younger, i.e. boxers, judo athletes, jockeys, and then the, the, the knock-on effects of later life obesity and cardio, uh, cardio metabolic risk. And what they're basically saying is that the more that you weight cycle through your career and the bigger those fluctuations are, the, the more chance you've got later on in life of being clinically obese and having cardio metabolic disease. And none of our, there's some great examples, isn't there, like Ricky Hatton, you know, they he stop box. He he does these big weight fluctuations. He stops and then bang, off it goes. And what they're saying in there is, 
you're much better actually to minimise the amount of these big peaks and troughs and, and almost try and stay on weight your whole career if you're genuinely concerned about your health and well-being later on in life. And I think if you look at people like Canelo or Floyd Mayweather, you know, those types that kind of stay in and around the weight their whole career, Floyd will probably stay that shape the rest of his life now. I don't think he's ever going to balloon, is he? I don't think Canelo is ever going to balloon. That possibly because, well, they've just gone through such long periods of restriction that then when they do get a chance to relax, like, oh, I'm having dessert, I'm having a few beers. Fick this, I've spent so long without it. Because I'm assuming there's a good bit coming out on it in Ireland, actually, on jockeys as well. Some of the mental health issues around that chronic calorie restriction is really impacting their their depression levels as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I've been reading it recently because of the case study that we're about to publish, but it's fascinating area looking at the, the the body and how it reacts so when when we're going through these massive weight cuts inherently we will always lose fat mass because we're in a um a negative energy balance but if protein is not being consumed at optimal ranges then then there could well and most likely there's a knock-on effect of being in a catabolic state and we start to lose the muscle as well when when we go back into energy balance and positive energy balance the, the body starts accumulating fat mass at a faster rate than it does accumulate its muscle mass to get back to the habitual baseline that you were. So if you now, that's one camp, if you then do that again and again and again, what begins to happen is that, and in the paper, it's a brilliant way that they term it, but they call it colossal fattening. That basically camp after camp, we're getting this accumulation of yeah, we made, the, we made the weight and we lost the fat mass, but unfortunately we lost some muscle. Now that you're back in energy balance and positive, we're going to accumulate the fat even quicker than the muscle mass and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And what we actually show with Rocky's data is that some of that was coming true. So his final camp against Canelo before he went over to New York and, and lost his belt over there, his, his end fat mass was far greater than what it was when he when we got his first DEXA scan five years prior. So he his baseline fat mass that he managed to get down to was about two and a half kilo more. And when you said there about the four week um, lead in, would an awful lot because obviously in a longer lead in you would be aiming to to lose fat as much as possible. In a four week one, you're probably have as much of a focus on those final few days where you're dropping predominantly water weight specifically for the weigh in as opposed to the fat mass from further out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's two boxers I'm helping now, which again are, are friends, and um, they've both got six week camps, and so there's an element there of yeah, we're we're going to lose. We've probably got that four five week window where we can chip away at the fat mass and we can get that down, but then the question is, how much do you normally lose in that acute weight loss period, and what are you comfortable losing, and and how do you normally do it? And it was interesting talking to one of them because he, he was like, mate, he said, he said, I get to that final week and I, he went, I am not looking forward to it because I'm already tired. He said, I'm already pretty dehydrated. Uh, and it's waving the red flag to me to say, you're not in a good state to then start doing acute weight loss because you're already dehydrated and you're already low on energy. So I said to him, mate, we are flipping that, this camp. I want you to enter the final... 96 72 hours of acute weight loss and i want you to be fully hydrated and i want you to be eating so that we've got loads of 
of good weight to come off quite quickly. I, I do not want you dehydrated before you enter that. Um, so yeah, I think you, obviously there's there's that period where you can lose fat mass, but then in that shorter windows, you know, it, it is an honest discussion I would say with the athlete to say how you know is it three kilos you lose or is it four? How do you normally lose it? And I think where possible, we've just got to educate and guide them to to do it the be- the the correct ways. That's a really good point there. You say, how much do you usually lose? So hopefully you'd know from past fights, if I'm weighing in at 72, I can get from 74 to 72 easily in the last two days. So that kind of gives you a target. It also lets you know what they're comfortable with, what they're capable of doing on their own without um without your help. So you know, okay, he's used to doing this, whatever. Just on um when working with a boxer or a fighter through that leading, what are some of the key markers you take at the start throughout just to monitor are they still healthy is performance still okay on the day through like dexa maybe blood saliva and like that yeah i mean i with rocky and and the guys now i'm a little bit limited um i guess now it's covid and it's access but with rocky at the time i was almost i, I didn't plan to write this up at the time what I what I did plan to do at the time was just collect what I could collect in in the scope of what we were doing. So with Rocky, it was we did some uh, VO two max, we did resting metabolic rate with substrate utilization, and then we did uh, the DEXA scans. and And the main thing that I was collecting was body composition over time to make sure that he was dropping as we wanted him to drop. Body weight we would collect out longer term outside of the camp. We would just collect body weight once a week. And then kind of from 10 weeks to maybe four weeks, we just collect it once a week just to keep an eye on it. I didn't want him to focus too much on it. And then in the final 30 days, I used to collect it every day. And the reason I did that was because we could clear, we could see where his career was going in terms of British title, Commonwealth, European. And I was thinking the closer we get to a world title shot, I almost want to know this bloke's body better than he knows it. And to do that, I need to start collecting the data and I need to understand how his body weight looks at 25 days out before weighing. And so it was really nice for the Zoiga fight that he he openly says that he thinks he made the weight the best he's ever made it during that camp. And I collected from 31 days to weigh-in. I knew I could tell you exactly what weight he was on what day. And what was brilliant with that is that we then just rinsed and repeated for the Canelo fight. And I basically said to him, right, these are your target weights. This is where we need you to be. And it was amazing because over the five years working with Rocky, there were definitely periods during a camp where the weight wouldn't drop. And I was looking at it thinking, well, why is it not dropping? Like something's not right. And then you would tweak 30 grams of carbs in a meal. You would pull it out. Lo and behold, weight would start dropping. And so we knew at what point, it was normally about the 81, 82 kilo mark where Rocky's weight would begin to stick and then you'd need to adjust the either the training or the nutrition and then it would start rolling back off again. And it was that sort of data and that was amazing to know with him um, because, yeah, you, you just kind of knew where he was and whether he was on track. Um, and then outside of that, we just used to collect some subjective wellness stuff. So mood, sleep, upper body, lower body soreness and fatigue. And and there was a really interesting situation in one of the camps where soreness had gone through the roof, um, fatigue had gone through the roof. Oh, and sorry, we collected heart rate every single day as well. 
And then his heart rate had gone up, his resting heart rate, instead of it being like 45, 50, it had jumped to 65. And I didn't clock it at the time. I didn't, I didn't pick it up. But what happened 24, 48 hours later, he came down with the flu. And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? Like soreness, fatigue, heart rate variability has jumped and then bang, off, off comes the flu. And then when we saw that, we saw the beginning signs of it in the camp after. And so we just gave him two days rest. So soreness had gone up, heart rate was increasing again. And we went, mate, just rest. Just don't come in, chill out, go and do the spying with Jamie, but don't come to the uni. And we managed to minimise it. So he, he he had the, he, you know, the small sniffles were there, but it wasn't the flu that knocked him out. Um, so no, nothing really too sexy in terms of bloods and stuff, if I'm honest. Um, we Yeah, we just baseline heart rate, subjective wellness, body weights, and then DEXA scans at regular time points through the camp. Would there be any strength and power kind of goal marks that you have to meet along the way as well to make, I suppose, to control the drop in weight that it doesn't lead to a drop in performance or a drop in output as well? Because he's, I know it's a weight loss camp, but he's also in training for a fight at the same time. Definitely, yeah. And and sorry, I should have mentioned that Dr. Elliot Hall, another good friend and colleague of mine, he was helping with the S&C side of stuff. And so what we did with that was just measure, using a gym aware, the force velocity on certain exercises. And exactly that, we were trying to make sure that if muscle mass was dropping, it wasn't affecting ability to produce force at certain velocities. Um, and, and we got some okay data on that, but we didn't use that every camp, if I'm honest. Um, but it was another thing that we did collect. Because that's, I suppose, I'm coming from a bodybuilding background. There's obviously a lot of similarities in that weight drop, but it'd be flipped the other way that way, whereas it doesn't really matter if my power or strength drops once the actual muscle mass stayed the same. Whereas I'd assume with boxing and fight sports, to go the way around, you can lose muscle mass once once your power and your output stays the same. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that about the bodybuilding. My my partner, she's closing stages of her PhD, and and her PhD is working with female physique athletes. And you asked earlier about what's the optimal time for a camp. What's really interesting with these girls is that Anora's collected bloods with all of her uh, females. And she's shown that over a 16-week period, they gradually lose weight over time, which is probably the right way to do it rather than acutely. And because they've given their self time, their adherence to the program is quite good. They all have a cheat day or a cheat meal. So they're kind of resetting their psychological side of each week. And then they get to a stage where they look incredible in a bikini. They're, they're on stage getting judged, aesthetics. Again, they're not bothered about how strong the muscle is. They're bothered about how it looks. But what she found with that from the bloods is that there's no negative effects. There was no negative side effects of doing it over time and giving yourself time. And then what she's found is that because they're, they're not actually restricting that drastically, when they've stepped off of stage, what you normally see is that they rebound like a boxer would. Whereas actually... A lot of them do um, strategic refeeding where they might just increase the calories a little bit each week, which you're nodding your head about, so you know about it anyway. Wrote the book on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she's, and, and she's found that, like, she's saying to me, yeah, but I didn't find anything negative. And I'm like, yeah, but that's good. Like, you're actually showing how it should be done. So there's a lot to be said there. And um, just if anyone is interested in reading a little bit more about the blood side of stuff, my, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Carl Evans, has done his PhD in 
combat sport athletes and they've got a fantastic case study where they, they did take bloods at certain time points with a taekwondo athlete. Um, and they've also got a, a brilliant case study with an MMA athlete who um, who did experience some very, very severe blood marker damage, in, in particularly for the kidneys. So if you're interested, I'll, I'll send you the, um, the articles to that and you can add that to the show notes or whatever it is. Sorry, just in relation to that, again, kind of similarities with bodybuilding. So obviously the same thing would be true that the fat would accumulate quicker on the on the rebounding scale. Would you, after a fight or after a camp, would you reverse diet with your fighters or is it very much at the end of a camp they're like, right, cool, we're done, I'll see you next camp? Yeah, ide- ideally, I would say more with Chris Billum Smith now because he's, he's really into it. He's the type of athlete that would do that and we're, we're planning now. His vision over the next five years is to win a world title. So we're now strategically planning what that cycle looks like each year. With Rocky... He won that world title in Germany and I'll be honest, we were all on the lash. So he just finished a fight and he was there sinking beers with me. But at that moment, you're like, I'm not going to get in a way of with him, his brothers and all his scouse mates popping champagne on a balcony in Germany. Like, I'm going to enjoy that celebration with him. So there is 100% a strategic refeed, I think, should be put in place to minimise that peak that you get in that rebound because like I said earlier the, really I think the, the boxers that kind of sit in and around their weight they, they haven't got to go through these drastic weight cuts to, to get ready for stay um, for the fight and I think you know it does take it out of you it does zap you I sat in a sauna with Rocky um, first camp I did with him and I, I had to get out after 20 minutes. I had a banging headache. It was minging. I lost like 500 grams. It was horrible. I hated it. I'll never do it again. And he said to me, he was like, I don't like doing it like this. And I was like, well, why are we doing it then? <laughs> so that that's kind of, yeah, there's, um, but I think, you know, you, you get, you get to know your fighters, don't you? And you get to learn what, what they, what works with them. And you talk about knowing your fighters. I, I knew after about four and a half minutes or, five minutes Rocky would start sweating so I so I almost knew that get, get him exercising five minutes later he'll start dropping weight he was just a, a big sweater so things like that that in Germany when it's 30 degrees in July you've only got to go around the block and do a little run together and he's, he's probably lost a kilo kilo and a half that, that's actually a really similar point that we changed coach Brian Hickey on a couple of months ago now but he made an awful lot of really similar points around like after the competition bringing the athlete back up through like strategic refeed but having the duty of care to them and their their health not just to step on stage but afterwards bring it back to a healthy shape just um i don't think you'll have a specific answer for this but when fighters make weight and they have to drop a lot of weight they're calorie restricted throughout the training process how and like i know they have to because there's so much around making the weight strategically and everything how much potential performance could they be given up to make that weight Oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you mean if they've struggled to make the weight and the knock-on effect it can have for the performance, yeah. Yeah, and even just in general, like it, sometimes, you know, someone who fights at 72 and always makes 72 from 80, like would they often be better off just fight at 76? I'm not aware of the actual weights now, so, but you know, is 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 the juice sometimes worth the squeeze? Would it be better fighting a higher weight or, you know, are they giving up reach? Are they giving up size? Everything that way, like... 
I, I, look, I don't think you'll have a specific answer. I'll just kind of tease it out a bit. No, it's, it's a good question. And I suppose what I would say, so that, that case study that I'm referencing to that Cole did with the um, MMA fighter, off the back of the results of that, I'll never forget Cole telling me, I used to live with Cole, and he, he went, mate, we've had these bloods back from the Royal Hospital in Liverpool. And the nurses rang me asking me what the what the guy does because there's acute kidney damage here and she's asking whether he's like an alcoholic or something. And I was like, really? Like, on, on his bloods? And he went, look, and he pulled all the blood data up and he showed me. I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's the lowest testosterone that's ever been reported in a male athlete. And you look at stuff like that and so the duty of care from Cole there to the athlete was to say, our, our honest opinion, or not opinion, our, our honest advice is that you don't fight at this weight anymore because you're going to cause yourself some serious damage, if not cause some death. And we know that we know it happens. It happens every year. Unfortunately, people lose their lives because they're trying to make the weight. So I think there is definitely a... Uh, a, a remit there of duty of care from practitioner to athlete 100 percent um and, and i think you're right i think it does impact performance like how can you go through a, a very severe dehydration with minimal food for a week and then expect within 24 hours you're going to feel hunky-dory ready to go back in the ring and, and get your head beaten out i i just I definitely think it will impact performance. If not, it's impacting sleep and it's impacting focus, alertness. And so the, the aim of the game really is that those that do want to do a bit of an acute cut to, to make the weight, it's almost minimising the stress on the body to do that. So I'll give you an example. Like We got to a point with Rocky that even in the final week, he was eating and he was eating substantial all the way up to about 48 hours beforehand. And then we drop it down but I was just trying to clear the glycogen out of the muscle, food out of the um, out of the guts. He was still eating on, on weighing day and he'd do a sweat out, but we were basically losing two kilo of fluid from exercise. I've got rugby players back in the day that would lose two and a half kilos in an 80 minute game playing rugby, but you'd never look at them and go, oh, you naughty boy, you're dehydrating. It was just part of the sport. So with Rocky, it was... We want to get him to a point where we basically lose two, two and a half kilo of fluid from sweat, get on the scales, mate, and then bang, off we go, let's get, let's have the refeed. Is there potential performance losses as well from like calorie restriction throughout the whole training camp as well? Like, Could they be losing you know, potential fitness strength power that way as well? Is that a factor? Definitely, definitely. And I, you know, I hold my hands up as a practitioner working on the case study. You know, there, there were camps where Rocky's lean mass or fat-free mass from the DEXA had dropped quite substantially and we were looking at that thinking okay he's definitely consuming less calories because we know that the weight's coming down but protein was still 2.2 2.5 gram per kilo a day so he was just in a severe catabolic state and I would have loved Rocky to keep all of his lean mass and just drop fat mass but Sometimes it doesn't help when the fighter presents at quite a large weight to start with because you have to look at it and go, honestly, if we're going to make the weight, we've, we're going to have to take a bit of muscle off, unfortunately. And that's where someone like Chris Billum-Smith, you know, he's a brilliant athlete because he's lean pretty much all year round. Yeah, he puts on a little bit of, of puppy fat, I guess, but 
he's in great shape all year round. And so I'm confident with him that he's genuinely just chiseling off that final bit of fat, three, four kilos. Then he has his three kilo acute weight loss. He's made the weight and he's in prime shape. And I think that's the way to do it. Like you, you kind of hover just above. I suppose we have to bear in mind as well that like this is elite sport at the top end of that. And elite sport isn't always healthy. Like some people might think, oh, they're the healthiest people in the world. They're trained all the time. But going to those extremes through a number of sports isn't always that healthy. Just um, last bit on this before we go into kind of a few rapid fire ones. Weight, I think I see it more in MMA. You've probably seen it as well. Some of the weigh people nearly fainting off the scales and stuff. Is it likely to be regulated at any stage? And if so, could you even go about it? Like, or, or how could that possibly work? Some of the, the massive cuts that some fighters take coming into fights. Yeah, I I don't know. And I mean, if if you haven't had Carl on the podcast, I'd I'd recommend getting Carl on because he he this is his baby he loves talking about it he's very knowledgeable around this area and we've had discussions when we live together about how how do you try and stop it and and one way is that you maybe bring in height categories instead height divisions but he was like mate you it doesn't really matter they'd still find a way to do it so i, I don't know how you do it do you do you, do you look at doing a little bit like what judo do where you have same day weigh-ins so you can't have this big rebound in weight um but fundamentally i don't think the the boxing federations would want to shift anything if i'm honest is it the olympics you have to weigh in every morning throughout uh yes i think so yeah 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 but logistically how would that work like in a 14 camp and you have two fighters in different countries who are you going to send out with their weighing scales like yeah and do you know what right so one thing i do know that happens is that around four weeks prior to the fight you'll have someone from the British Board of Control, they'll they'll meet up with Rocky, for example, and they'll do a check weight with him. And the check weight, I, th- I think with Rocky, so he used to weigh in at 76.2. The check weight used to be 82, I think. So they just checked that like four weeks out, he wasn't doing a dramatic cut. He was like a little bit above, but he was in a good place. But, you know, Rocky, he'd say, mate, in the past, like, if I knew they were coming like in two days' time, I'd just do a quick two kilo drop, get on the scales. Yeah, I'm sweet, and then but he he wasn't actually sweet because he'd had to do a drop for the check weight. So I don't know what the answer is with the industry. I I think as practitioners, we've just got those that are seeking the help. We've got to support a hundred percent, and those that aren't, we need to try and educate them to to work with a professional because it's not really their job to know what they need to be doing in a way like they they haven't gone to university to study it they they're not going to understand unless they read up on it a little bit like what chris does but they're not going to understand the evidence scientific journals around acute weight loss so it's our job to educate them and i you know i would say that any coaches that are working with combat sport athletes that are trying to make the weight there's loads of nutritionists out there qualified that would happily help out people because ultimately it's it's people's health, isn't it? Like it is a good thing that boxers are approaching you and are approaching universities, and there is a certain amount of of research backed work going in there because you would hear of some very questionable practices, particularly over the years. And you know we've probably all heard one or two of the people who have been on 
one or two larger podcasts than this based in america that are very very famous and maybe spout some methods that you'd be like mm, i'm not so sure about that um so at least like and like obviously through your work you're publishing case studies I think are a great way but even finding more mediums that can translate this down to to your boxer who doesn't like day of an evening open up PubMed with his glass of like water <laughs> Just last bit then, you've been brilliant with your time. Shane is going to take us through some of the, the rapid-fire questions we, we try and hold on to for, for nutritionists. We had loads of other stuff we wanted to dig into, but like the info you were giving was just so good. We'll, uh, it gives us a great excuse to bring you back on sometimes. So. Yeah, we can do, a, do another one anytime. Perfect. All right, awesome. So again, they're just going to be quick and rapid. Some of them will just be word-word answers, but they're just simple enough questions we ask all our nutrition friends who come on the pod. So first off, favourite meal as a child? McDonald's, because that was uh, my dad's franchisee. Nice. Can only go uphill from there when you started as a kid. Uh, cool. Most common mistake you see people make in regards to nutrition. So we kind of, I suppose we split that into general population and then maybe athletes. I would say general pop, not consuming enough protein. Um, and I would say athletes under fueling with an element of carbophobic. Yeah, 100%. Cool. Right, so I'm sure you have loads of these from a boxing background, but a novel or unexpected challenge you faced with an athlete and how you overcame it. So something you just weren't expecting to see in a nutrition realm. Oh, wow. Good question. Um, this, well, I remember, it's probably not, well, it was unexpected at the time, but Ben Curry, when he, um, he snapped his ACL, at the game and that was kind of the first time that I'd seen it live but then it was like right what what's what do we do now how do we get him ready for surgery and how do we support him through the rehabilitation of that so that was probably that situation in terms of like an injury nutrition um and then another one and and I I can talk about this because I've had him on the podcast that I do but Dom Crosby was another rugby player at Warrington and unfortunately he went through a period where he he lost his baby daughter um after a, you know a couple of weeks of uh, being alive and that was a really tough moment for everyone involved at the club obviously for Dom and in that situation it was nutrition was still in my mind but it was more about how do I support this bloke now considering he's going through the worst period of his life and so I just, through, you know, help with John Clark as well, and it, it was our idea together, it was like, right, how can we support him nutritionally? So we just put together like a care package of nutrition. It was prepped meals, protein bars, nuts. It was just making sure that he had food that he could eat because he wasn't going to be thinking about that right there at that time. Um, and that was like a unique, it wasn't really a challenge, but it was just a unique situation to be in because... I was still trying to support him nutritionally, but trying to care for him as a bloke as well. Um, so yeah, probably that. Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, I'd never kind of think of that as a scenario, but you almost have to like, you put yourself as a friend forward first and then as a coach is just in the background, but it's still coaching him as your job and the end of the day, it's trying to meld the two together. Yeah, the the opposite of that is I, I left him alone for, for a couple of months and didn't support him at all. And we were sponsored by My Protein at the time. We had copious amounts of nuts bars protein powders i rang up a food prep company that i knew very well and said look this is the situation can we just get two weeks worth of meals sent to him so he just didn't have to worry about getting in late from wherever 
he knew that he had food there and, and he you know, he even says to this day he's like, mate, I don't think anyone else would have thought of that thing. So yeah, that uh, that just sticks out for me. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Um, cool, right, next one. Favourite home cooked meal or what would you cook when you're trying to impress somebody? <laughs> um I only laugh because my missus says that I'm a, a shocking cook. <laughs> um what would I cook? Home cooked. Um I'm gonna cheat and just say a barbecue. I just I, I love ripping into meat. Proper man food. <laughs> yeah. All right, perfect. So, top tip for meal prep or bulk cooking. Um, if you've got the money, use a meal prep company um, because it can save a lot of time. And obviously, I I know a very good one. I won't say names, but. If you get a good one, then you know what you're getting. You, you know, 40, 50 grams of carbs, 30, 40 grams of protein, and then it becomes quite easy to plan the rest of the day around it. Um, if not, then buy a good set of Tupperware that seals shut because there's nothing worse than the pasta dish falling over and <laughs> leaking out everywhere. The porridge in the bottom of your school bag. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that, yeah. Oh, the worst. Right, nutritional pet peeves or myths that drive you mad? Um, people that think carbs make them fat uh, winds me up. Um, and it and it results in a lot of conversations that you have to have to try and get people back to baseline <laughs> knowledge again, I guess. Um, and then this is not a dig by any way at all, but I I I think that nutrition sometimes people disregard the industry a little bit because everyone eats in in the world every single human puts food in their mouth everyone's got an opinion on food but that doesn't result in you knowing what you think that you might know about nutrition like i lift weights but that doesn't mean that i know everything i need to know about snc and so sometimes what annoys me is when you speak to an athlete or a person and They've had nutritional advice from someone who's not qualified because, again, you're then trying to re-educate them on what is the correct thing to be doing. Um, and nutrition is an industry just like any other. And so I think um, it's changing now. I think people are really really experiencing the value of having a good nutritionist in their club or organisation. So probably that, probably is p- people's opinion on food sometimes. Yeah, 100% agree. So it's not like... In my mind, the mark of a good nutritionist would be someone who could explain something in very, very simple terms. And then if someone turns around and be like, sure, that's easy. And they're like, well, well, you're not doing it, A. And B, it's easy because I'm making it so you can understand it as easy. Yeah. Perfect. All right, next one, tea or coffee? Coffee, 100%. Good answer. And what advice would you give to someone who would like to work in nutrition? Um, volunteer. And, and don't be afraid of volunteering at the moment, like... If if you genuinely want to work in the industry, put your hand up and, and help out somewhere because people are always after extra hands. Um, don't be afraid to pick up the phone or or reach out to practitioners that are in the industry now because we're a great industry. There's a lot of us that are happy to share and, and give advice on, on what we've done. Um, and the last thing is I'm currently writing a book that will help answer that question. So <laughs> once, once that's released... Um, Purchase my book. <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. I was going to, if I was, I was going back to it again, again, I'd definitely, definitely take the snowboarding, snowboarding in Canada route before, 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 yeah. before I started, <laughs> I started into it. it. Yeah. 
All right, so that's, that's us all wrapped up. James, thanks for your time. Unless John has any more questions. Yeah, there was one more on that list, actually. One thing you'd recommend that would improve most people's health or performance and it doesn't have to be nutritional related? Just move more. I think, especially lockdown, I think um, working from home, we, we've probably got a little bit used to sitting down all day long. Um, and I think people need to move more. If, if people are genuine about losing weight, becoming healthier, then we, we've got to increase energy expenditure. Yeah, spot completely agree. Just if you want to plug uh, your upcoming book, your own podcast, something like that, where can we find any of them? What are the names? Yeah, so the podcast is called uh, Mind Side Podcast, um, and I do that with a colleague of mine and friend Rob Seaborn, and it's it's different to this. the The purpose of the podcast is that um, at some point the, in in life, people go through difficult moments. So I lost my father about two and a half years ago, fatal cardiac arrest. Really difficult time in my life, but you you come through it and. You know, I, I wanted to share kind of the tools and techniques that I use to, to get over the loss of my dad. And we spoke with Dom Crosby. We spoke with lecturers. So, yeah, it's a podcast where people share about how they've come through difficult moments. And it's more of a kind of mental, um, psychological motivation podcast, I guess. Um, people sharing their advice on that. And then um, the book that I'm currently writing now that hopefully will be released back under the summer. And it, it, I've kind of interviewed nine, ten performance nutritionists in the industry about what makes a su- successful performance nutritionist. And we've got nine, ten different case studies in the book that basically uncover that, that question and give loads of advice to upcoming practitioners. Brilliant. So we'll just keep, out on your, keep an eye on your social media stuff. See that come out. Do you have a title for it yet? I don't know. No, I. It's along the lines of what makes a successful performance nutritionist, but I think people's definitions to the point. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the definition of success is is different for everyone, isn't it? So it will be along that line. Yeah. No, James, absolutely brilliant with your time. Thanks a million for today. No problem. Thanks for having me on.